Mark chapter number 2, verses 1 through 12. If you can and will, would you stand with us, please, as we read our text that we're preaching from this morning. I'm interested, as we were preaching from this passage last week, in Christ's miracle of forgiving and hearing, uh, healing, excuse me, the paralytic. Mark chapter 2. Now, the companion passages are found in Matthew 9, 1 to 8, and Luke 5, 17 to 26. Here's Mark's account, John Mark's account. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. That word house simply means place of residence. And straightway, many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on the own earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose and took up the bed and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. I'm going to ask Ray Owen, if you will, to lead us in prayer. And also, would you, um, many of us have needs in our lives. And that unspoken request, that's real business, isn't it? All of us carry burdens for other people and for ourselves. Ray, would you pray for Cynthia Duffy? She's been down her back. I saw her when she got into the back pew back there a while ago. Would you pray for Cynthia and pray for us regarding the service, please? Amen. Thank you, brother, and thank you for standing. Christ's miracle of forgiveness and healing of the paralytic brought to him, born, or in other words, carried, of four. Briefly mentioned the, the places where we were in the text last week and then try to pick up and complete the message uh, this morning. You remember we've noticed in the life of Christ a number of particulars. We've noticed his preaching thus far. There'll be much more of that to come. We've noticed his personal encounters with people, his casting out of men unclean spirits, his healing of men. And this is one of those encounters this morning that we're looking at again now for the second time of his healing of this paralytic. But that's not the greatest miracle that takes place in his life in this particular text. I'll remind you, we're still in the first year of Christ's ministry. There will be three years. It's a popular song that is out. Uh, it's, it's been in uh, Southern Gospel. Um, Southern Gospel song has been out for several years. Very popular. People get mighty stirred up about it, about... Um, my name is Lazarus, and basically that Lazarus was one of the four carrying the paralytic man. It just won't fit. Uh, 
Uh, Jesus heals this man in the first year of his ministry. He won't raise Lazarus from the dead until his third year of his ministry. But it doesn't matter, does it? As long as we feel pretty good about things, uh, we seem to can get a shout out of one another over that. And you say, preacher, I wouldn't have mentioned that. I know you wouldn't have. That's why God called me to preach who didn't call you. But anyways, we were looking through the text last week. We actually have six particulars, whereas normally we'd take two, three, or four. Uh, this text really has six large divisions to it or emphasis. The first one being in verse number one, you'll notice back with this, back at this with me very briefly, there's the location of this miracle. The Bible says in verse number one, and he entered into Capernaum, and again, excuse me, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And Jesus is in Capernaum. Of course, that was located on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And of course, this verse begins, this chapter begins, and again, Jesus now resides in Capernaum. You remember he was rejected in the synagogue at Nazareth. He grew up in that congregation attending every Sabbath. When he revealed who he was from a text in Isaiah, you will remember he was rejected of the people. And so as he left town unwanted, he goes to Capernaum. He now resides there more specifically in the home of Simon Peter. As a matter of fact, that brings us to our next thought. Right out of verse number 1, it was noised he was in the house. We believe it's Simon Peter's house he's in again. You remember in chapter 1, verse 29, the Bible says, And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, uh, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And now we're back at that house here in chapter number 2. You say, preacher, I don't necessarily believe it was in Simon's house. Well, you can be wrong if you want to. Say amen right there. And maybe you'll get to heaven and Gabriel will slip up beside you and say, you know that thing you disagreed with the preacher on about where Jesus resided in Capernaum? He, that preacher had it right and you were wrong the whole time. But you remember that uh, to whom much is given, much shall be required. Capernaum will watch Jesus for some two and a half years go in and out among them. He will perform miracles. He will preach. He will live. He will dwell there. He will leave Capernaum and preach in the regions of Galilee. But when he's finished preaching, he comes back to Capernaum. It's home base for him now. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 23. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down unto hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. I tell you, I was looking over this this morning early. And I thought about what the Lord said about rising up in judgment against those that will be judged in a day to come. And he spoke of the men of Nineveh. He spoke of the queen of, of the south, who was none other than the queen of Sheba. And just the men of Nineveh. I went back and looked up. Uh, of course, I have these verses underlined in my Bible. But the Bible says that he said uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse number 41, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Can you imagine being a sinner at the great white throne judgment of God, and the gavel of eternity is about to slam, and justice, or at least condemnation, be meted out, judgment be meted out against a lost person? Then all of a sudden, there's a group of scruffy-dressed men make their way up toward at the judgment bar of God. and says, wait a minute, Lord. These, uh, this one that is before you that rejected your son, 
We just want to offer evidence. They do deserve to go where you're about to send them. We repented, and there was a preacher that you sent to us that cared nothing for us. They wanted to see judgment. He wanted to see judgment upon all of us and our people. He cared nothing for us. He pronounced judgment and walked away for a span of time. Then when you spared the city, he was angry about that. Can you imagine them saying, uh, we never had a Sunday school class to attend. We never had a pastor. We didn't have Adrian Rogers on the TV on Sunday morning while we readied for church. And yet here they are. They had a church in every bend of the road in Pontotoc County. And yet they still rejected Christ. Again, to whom much is given, much shall be required. There's also the location of the miracle and then the exposition of the word. Verse number one, for time's sake, we'll only mention the fact that many people have gathered in the house in verse one. The end of verse number two says, and he preached the word unto them. Christ's preaching defines his ministry. You look at his three and a half years. His preaching defines his ministry. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He cast out... Uh, many devils, but everywhere he went, he preached the word of God. Whether he taught in parables or he preached a sermon, such as he did um, uh, when he dealt with the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13 or the great sermon on the mount, but great multitudes have come unto him, and they've come unto him, and so he is going to preach. Uh, I believe people come to him. The more I look at the li- life of Christ, excuse me, because of his compassion. I think you will agree with me that we are all interested in those who are interested in us. So it is Christ is interested in people. And you should be interested in folk. And I should be interested in folk. We should never snub our nose at someone because we think that we're better than because the truth of the matter is we're not. None of us are. And it doesn't take but a trip to the doctor or a trip down the highway to change where we live and how we live our lives. God's been good to us. I went back and re-looked at the, the old story of Joseph Scriven. He was engaged to a lovely young lady who drowned. They were nearing their wedding date, and the girl he was engaged to, his fiancée, fiance, she drowned. And for months he was bitter and discouraged. And out of that, that experience, he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and the only one that could give him peace after they buried his fiancée. He would sit down and write the words out of that experience. What a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Aren't you glad that Jesus cares? I am glad that he cares. He cared enough for these people here to preach the word of God to them that day. And then we came to where we stopped last week, the condition of this man brought to Christ for healing. Look at verse 3 and verse 5. The Bible says in verse 3 and then in verse 5, and they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. Verse 5 says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy. To be sick of the palsy uh, speaks of paralysis. The condition of this man is that he's paralyzed. We believe it's because of sickness in his life. Some sicknesses will leave you paralyzed. I spoke to you about a young man in his early 40s last week. He's just kind of holding on over in the shoals in the hospital. Uh, spoke to you about Zach Coates last Sunday. His family reached out to our family. And asks for prayer. And he is paralyzed on his right side. He's been strong and healthy all of his life. Has children depending upon him. Yet he's had a stroke down his right side. And he's paralyzed down his right side. I've known men, and you have too. Women as well, paralyzed. Uh, Either paraplegics or quadriplegics paralyzed. You ladies, when I've mentioned ladies you ought to read after. uh, Some of you have left and later told me, I bought the book. You're right. 
But what a blessing she has been. Joni Erickson Tata is a paraplegic. She's been that way for a lot of years because of a uh, diving accident. And she gives God all the glory for her life. She is confined either to a bed or uh, when she is in a wheelchair, it is operated by the movements and breath from her mouth. Uh, she, she is a member of a church in the state of California. Her pastor helped minister to her through those days and her husband and her family. But this man's problem was paralysis. This man's friends showed him kindness. The compassion of his friends is seen in verse number 3. Well, the Bible says, and they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. The four show compassion for their friend. They show compassion for the one. There's the cooperation of his friends. Uh, they were born of four. One could have dropped their corner. It he would have been on somewhat of what we might call a pallet. A lot of us grew up, we spent the night with cousins or friends, and that's what we slept on, right, it was a pallet. And that's what this man lived on, basically. And his friends would each take a corner and would lift the pallet, lift his bed, lift his cot, if you will, and carried him to the house where Jesus is. The cooperation of his friends. This is where we got to last week. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 to 9 says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. We are laborers together with God. You're God's husbandry. Uh, you're God's building. I tell you, that's what it's supposed to be at the church. Everybody pulling. You pull your corner. You lift your corner. I'll lift mine. Uh, you lift yours and I'll lift mine. I'll lift mine and you lift yours. We implemented this uh, ministry of the deacons some uh, three or four years back now. They're pulling a weight. Nobody sees what they do, but they're... They have a corner, and may we all do the same. Greg's going to get, Brother Greg's going to get the choir together this, uh, this evening, this morning after service, and he'll pull his corner. He'll lift his corner, and you lift yours if you're a member of the choir. Notice with me now, if you will, these complications, these difficulties presented in the narrative. Watch verse number 4. The Bible says, And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, in other words, for the crowd, for the number that was there, uh, they uncovered the roof where he was. In other words, they untiled the tile that was on the roof. Uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. These difficulties, these problems that are presented to the man himself and also presented to the four. The man who is paralyzed, of course, he has obvious difficulties. He could not help himself, and he could not get himself there. There's the difficulty before the four, verse number four says. Here's the reason for it. Verse number four says, when they could not come nigh to him for the press. The size of the crowd actually was a hindrance. It was a hindrance in getting the man there. The house is full. Not only is the house full, but the doorway is full. And you couldn't get even to the doorway. And because of that, that presents a problem to these four men that are trying to get their friend to the church. Now, there's a remedy the remedy for this difficulty of the four. Verse number four, when they could not come nigh to him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. These men, <coughs> excuse me, are determined to get their friend to Christ and continue to work together in doing so. There's nothing God's people can't work through. That goes for the church. That goes 
for a home. Austin and McKinley are about to get married. I thought about that with them. It's nothing they'll ever face but what Christ can't get them through. Jonathan and Hayden were recently married. As a matter of fact, we said this in their presence, and they both smiled and agreed. There's actually nothing they will ever face that if they'll keep their eyes on Christ, they cannot get through. Dave and Peggy Box may not believe it, but, uh, but there's nothing y'all will ever face that you can't get through if you'll keep your eyes on Jesus. Brother David's going to concede and believe that to be the case. But so it is with the individual life. May we all keep our eyes on Christ. Now notice with me, if we go verses 5 through 9, this is the case brought to Christ or the situation. The paralytic's sins are going to be forgiven and he will be healed. Verses 5 through 9. The Bible says when Jesus saw their faith. Now, we don't know that he necessarily saw the faith of just the four. He may have seen the faith of the five. It may very well be that this man taken with palsy requested to get to Christ. It may very well be that his friend said, I need help. I've heard Jesus is home. I've heard he's in the house. Can you get me to Christ? Can you get me to the Messiah? Now, we lay a lot, all of our emphasis on the four. But it very well may be that this man wanted to get to Christ himself. Five to nine, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man speak, thus, or speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. We know which was easier. The easier of the two is, Thy sins be forgiven thee, because you can't see the evidence of it perhaps. But now when you say, Son, take your bed, roll it up and get out of here, go home. Now, if that's going to be real, and I'll say more about that in just a moment, and that'll have to be displayed if he's going to go that far with it. Let me say a word about the forgiving of this man's sins. Again, verse number 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Before he will heal this man's body, he's going to forgive this man's spirit and soul. The soul of the man, the, the body, according to 1 Thessalonians, the person is made up of three partite, right? Just like the Godhead. The Godhead is made up of Father, Son, and Spirit. And the body, the man, is made up of body, soul, and spirit. We often talk about the saving of the soul. The soulish part of a man is his thinking capacity. It's the ability to be touched in his emotion. That's where the soulish part of a man is. Man is not a body that, that possesses a spirit, but spirit possessing a body. Uh, this is where we animate how we feel and express uh, how we feel is in our bodies. One day when we die, we're going to lay the body down. But the soul and the spirit are going to be very much alert and be with God. I asked Miss Pat Brindle back there while we're going to the fellowship song. I leaned over, and I didn't want to just lean over and say it passing by, but I leaned over and looked intently. I said, how are you doing? And she said, well, it's up and down. i tell you why it's up and down. It's because the body of Brother Darrell is out here next door, right here on the lot of the, uh, of the church grounds. But now his soul and his spirit is in the presence of Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, that body's not present, but one of these days Christ shall step out in the air into our atmosphere and with a shout and with the voice of the archangel, and that body's going to get up and be joined back to that soul and spirit. And so here, the forgiving of the man's sins. Sin is man's greatest problem. 
The forgiveness of sin is far more important than the healing of our ills. Did you hear what I said? The forgiveness of sins. The greatest need of anyone here today is you, your need of forgiveness, particularly, especially if you're lost without Christ. You can go to heaven from a sick body. A lot of people do. You can go to heaven and having a, a weak mind. And you can go to heaven having had a, a backward disposition and demeanor and a shy demeanor. But you cannot go to heaven without God's forgiveness. You can't go to heaven without being set free from your sins. A man doesn't go to hell because of what he does. He goes to hell because of what he is. A man is a sinner. You must be born again, Jesus said to Nicodemus. Why? Why must a man, a woman, a boy or girl be born again? It's because our first birth was messed up. In our first birth, uh, we were born into Adam's fallen race. Depraved, dirty sinners. All of us are sinners. Some of us saved today. I hope everybody, under the sound of my voice, is saved by the grace of God. But if you're not here today, uh, saved. You need to be saved. You need forgiveness is what uh, you need. Forgiveness is born through the womb of Calvary. Uh, forgiveness is not born through the baptismal pool. You can be baptized, as old uh, E.L. Crumpton used to say, you can be baptized till every tadpole in the county knows you by name and still be lost. It's uh, being saved and forgiven does not come through church membership. You can belong to four or five churches, not have your name removed from, uh, from uh, any of them, and still not go to hell. Uh, forgiveness comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can merit it, then it would mean that uh, you could earn it. It would mean that, uh, that Calvary uh, would have been in vain. Uh, this man, he needs to be forgiven, and that God would forgive you or me. God would forgive anyone that will come to Christ. That should produce humility and worship in any of our lives. Forgiveness is the greatest need because, uh, because it meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price. Jesus had to die for our sins in order for us to be saved. Costs the greatest price. Brings the greatest joy and lasts throughout all eternity. There's the healing of the man and his paralysis. Verse number 11. The Bible says, I say unto thee, arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. We'll say more about that in just a moment, so let's lay it by for just a moment or two. There's also in this text the confronting of certain scribes. They're skeptics, and we won't spend a lot of time here. But the further we go, the more you'll find that there are those that, will, that are very skeptical of Christ. As a matter of fact, the fact that he said he could forgive sins, that'll be why they'll crucify him. That he's about his father's business. He uttered that at the age of 12 in the temple. That'll be why they'll crucify him. That he claims to be God. That he claims to be on equal par, equal standing with the father. That'll be why they'll crucify him. The confronting of these certain scribes, verses 6 to 10. The perception of Christ is scripturally noted. Verses 6 to 10. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there. You, would like, you wish it would read like this. That we're rejoicing. Because this man's sins were forgiving. Forgiven. You would think that somebody would have shouted because this man had his sins forgiven. But the Bible says, but there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, uh, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed, and walk. The perception of Christ is noted here in the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit wants us to see this. 
Of course, all hearts and minds lay bare before our great Lord. There's nothing hidden from him. Nothing escapes the all-seeing eye of our Lord, the all-knowing mind of our gracious God. You know, I'm like old Ronnie Johnson. Used to pastor Ronnie. He had a tender heart toward the things of God. God saved him as a young man, married, and with a child. And when he'd testify, uh, Ronnie was, he was a man's man. He grew up in a sharecropper's home. There were eight of those boys. I loved his daddy. His daddy got saved late in life. His daddy used to talk about, used to complain about the government. Used to complain about prices of food and drugs. And he called his tithes, called them his dues. And he, I, he used to tell me, he used to say, Preacher, it's all I can do to get my dues paid. He used to talk about his tithes. And grew up not, not having much. Ronnie grew up not having much. And Ronnie never forgot where he came from. Never forgot where he came from. A lot of, lot of Sunday mornings, Sunday nights or Wednesday evenings. Ronnie and I would be the last to leave up at Thrasher. He had a red Chevy pickup truck. And uh, he, he and I would park by one another around the side. Go out the back hall and down and around in the side parking lot. We'd leave the awning and a lot of times I'd say, Brother Ronnie, see you Wednesday or see you tonight or something along that line. Brother Ronnie, he was sort of primped up. I said, what's wrong? He says, just reading this week where the Bible says that we're going to be judged for every idle word. And he said, I've said things. I'm going to tell you something. I have too, and you have too. We've all said things. Thank God we can find forgiveness for it. We've all done things. Thank God we can find forgiveness for it uh, in the sight of God. God knows all about you. He knows about you what no one else knows. He knows about me what no one else knows. And that we serve a God that's willing to forgive sin that's willing to forgive no matter where a man's been, no matter where he's been, no matter what he's done, no matter what he's done. I'm thinking of the testimony of a man that was sent to prison for killing, for killing a man. Then after he got out, he wanted to ask the pastor. The pastor had visited him and had asked, would it be appropriate, do you think it would be possible for me to come and stand before the church and make, make an apology, even if I have to leave out back? And I don't want to be a disruption. Coming to the service on a Sunday morning, the pastor thought it might be uh, something that is permissible. And, of course, he made apology to the church, and uh, he lived with such regret. But the man's life that he had taken was the piano player's husband. And whenever he finished in tears, he was so broken, the pianist got up, walked around, and placed a holy kiss on his cheek and said, I forgive you. He said, I forgave you a long time ago. And I want to tell you something. Only God can bring that about. But a man that has experienced a that has experienced forgiveness, he extends forgiveness. We were dealing with that when, he clo- when we closed the book of Job a few Wednesday nights about, uh, 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 back. That is the Christian mandate. Listen to the omniscience of God. The psalmist wrote about it. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my, my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down. And art acquainted with all of my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me before and behind, uh, behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Now, first of all, Christ, uh, his perception, he perceives the faith of the four. And again, it could very well have been the five, but I just want to emphasize the four right here. Uh, the Bible says in verse number five, when Jesus saw their faith, I see today what I think is your faith. I trust it is your faith. I've known Jim Busby for a lot of years. We've known one another on both sides of the cross. Uh, we've been in church together before we were in church here at, at uh, Charity. Before, uh, before we were at church here, we, we've been in church before. 
And he's been a friend for a lot of years. And, uh, and I believe I'm seeing faith in his life lived out, fleshed out in shoe leather. And I'm sure he could say the same about me, but really, only God and I know whether or not I'm in the faith, and only Jim and God knows whether or not he is in the faith. Do you know when Jesus looks upon your life and he looks upon my life, who would have said some weeks ago, who would have said Sandy Ward was not in the faith, that she was not in the way? Who would have said a few years back that Marsha Busby was not in the faith before she was saved? Who would have said of Dawn Wilburn that, that uh, she wasn't saved before she was saved? Do you understand what I'm saying? As a matter of fact, these two ladies that sit up near the front, now they bless me coming and going. A lot of services, you're sitting back there and see evidence of it, but I get to see the countenance. Now I'm telling you, along with a lifted hand, and t- I'm seeing tears that are falling off of, their, off of their, their face, coursing down onto their laps. And I'm telling you, they're grateful and humble that God let them live long enough to hear the gospel, be brought under conviction, be saved by the grace of God. When the Lord looks on at your life, what does he see? Does he see faith? Are you in the faith? Are you in the way? Do you know the Lord? Have you been saved by the grace of God? Their faith is noticeable by the Lord. Their efforts ought to be commendable by you and by me. What would you do to get a sinner to Christ? You remember those homes in Capernaum and Nazareth were built with flat roofs. There would have been an outside staircase of some sort. They spent a lot of time on their rooftops visiting with their neighbors, trying to cool after a long day as the sun was going down. These men are willing. They can't get through the door. Lesser men would have gone home. Lesser men would have thrown the towel in. Lesser men would have procrastinated and said, we'll come back another time. But they are persistent. Perhaps this friend has requested, please get me to Jesus. They're willing to go up the staircase. They know that there are cross beams and tiles that are laid across them. They know how to get down through the, through the ceiling. And so they're persistent. They're going to take the time and spend the effort. I wonder when's the last time that you got on the rooftop for a sinner? When's the last time you crawled up on the roof for a sinner? You understand what I'm saying? When's the last time you prayed for somebody that's lost without God? When's the last time you crossed the yard to share the gospel with somebody that is lost without Christ? These men are willing to get this man whatever it takes. Their prayers must have been effectual. Pray you one for another that you may be healed. Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that you may be healed, James wrote. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I wonder how much they prayed before they got this man here. And then their compassion, of course, is admirable. Christ perceived the faith of the four, verse number five. He perceived the thoughts of these certain scribes, verse number eight. The Bible says, and immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit, that they so reason within themselves, that is the scribes. He said unto them, why reason ye these things uh, in your hearts? Not only did he see the faith of the one on the pallet and the faith of the four that brought him, but he perceives the thoughts of these certain scribes, the critics of Christ. He didn't read their palms. He didn't read their horoscopes out of the daily journal, but he read their hearts. He read their minds. He knew what they were thinking. When God is at work, there will always be the critics to criticize the work. We've got some men in our area. I spoke to some of you to pray for them back when we were on the parking lot in our services and uh, ask you to pray. And I believe you did. I believe you prayed. I think you still pray for them. And uh, these young men that come to me that have been criticized, they've been criticized by some in the ministry that can't control them. I mean, they got out from under the umbrella and they just can't be controlled. And uh, they got out from under a preacher's shirt tail and couldn't be controlled. And every one of them, when they would come to me with where they were in their ministry and what they were experiencing, I would tell them, it's none of your business what they think about you. It's none of your business what they say about you. 
It's none of your business. What is your business is getting the word and spend some time on your knees in prayer. What is your business is to walk with Christ and have a word for every time you get behind the desk. Let the rough side drag. Just keep serving Christ. Anytime anybody does anything for God, you mark it down. There will be the critics. You let God's people begin to move, and I'm telling you the devil will stick his head up. I said to one of our men recently, the missions conference is coming on. You mark it down. Each year before the missions conference and each year before the Bible conference, we're not currently having a summer meeting, but each year before the summer meeting, those two years we had the ladies' conference. Before we have a vacation Bible school, you mark it down. There will be a battle of some sort. Usually it's all unnecessary, but there will be one. Anytime God is doing something, you mark it down, the devil will try to do something too. Notice with me also the setting forth of Christ is scripturally noted. Verses 6 through 11. We'll take them one or two at a time. Look at verses 6 and 7. First of all, the deity of Christ is set before us. Verses 6 and 7. But there were certain other scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? He shows his deity, number one, in forgiving this man. Did you know that the scribes taught that even when Messiah came, that he could not forgive sins, that God, the Father of Israel, would be the only one that could forgive sins. And, and uh, dear heart, Jesus is forgiving sins. You know what he's doing in doing so? He's proclaiming his deity. He is God in the flesh, the Son of God, God the Son, the second person of the Godhead. Number two, his deity is proclaimed in the healing of this man's body. Only God can heal a man uh, whenever he is suffering or sick or is crippled such as this man. And then he declared himself to be the son of man at least some 14 times in the book of Mark, 81 times in the Gospels. He calls himself the son of man. You know where that comes from? That comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In the Jewish mind, they knew well who the son of man was. He was a man that would dwell among them. He would be God himself. He's declaring his deity. You do believe in the son of God, don't you? You believe in God the Son. I'm telling you, he is the righteous branch of God. There's the reasoning of Christ set before us, verses 8 and 9. The Bible says, And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your heart? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. And of course, this reasoning. He says, You want to reason in your hearts? Let's reason. You want to talk? Let's talk. We just finished the book of Job. As a matter of fact, I've been able to preach on the book of Job a little bit the past few weeks in the outside meetings. And, and you remember, Job said at least on two occasions in the book of Job, oh, that I might have an audience with God in essence. And God finally said, you want an audience with me? Come on, let's talk. And whenever Job sat down before God and was drawn into his presence and God asked him those 77 questions, Job didn't have anything to say. Neither do I. When I think I want an audience with God, oftentimes what I need to do is just enter into his presence humbly in prayer and spend time with him in prayer and ask him to give me wisdom to face what I may be facing. Christ has the final say here with these scribes. He always does. He takes the argument from them. He always does. Notice with me the veracity of Christ's claims as this is set before us. Verse 10 through 12. The Bible says, But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. The Bible says, And immediately he arose and took up the bed and went forth before them all. The veracity. 
He said, well, there's easier to say. He said, I can say thy sins be forgiven thee, and you don't know whether or not I've forgiven them. You don't even know whether or not I have the power to But if I say arise, take up thy bed, and walk. Now, we'll prove that the proof's in the pudding right there. And he turned to the man, and he said, all right, get up. Roll your bed up. Why do you figure you want him to roll his bed up? First time a trial come his way, he'd be right back in it. He said, roll your bed up. And he said, now go to thine house. And he did exactly that. The scribes taught in their day that only God could hear, uh, heal someone who was paralyzed. The proof is in the pudding. Do you know there's something that uh, the skeptics through the years have tried to argue away? They've tried to argue away Christianity. They argue with the Bible. They said that the Bible is full of holes and mysticism and myth. Of course, they're wrong about a lot of other things. But you know one thing that they cannot reason away? They've never been able to handle the conversion of the sinner. When someone is saved by the grace of God, they cannot explain that away. They just can't do it. I remember many years ago, I was preparing for an Easter sunrise service to preach on the resurrection. And I came across Ian Paisley's writing. He was... Uh, he pastored Northern Ireland. You would have liked him. He's with the Lord, been with the Lord now. He's, he was put in prison in the late 60s, wrote one of the best commentaries on the book of Romans from his prison cell. You know why he was thrown in prison? He called the Pope the Antichrist, and he wouldn't back up. And he was in Parliament when Hillary Clinton and her entourage came into Parliament in Northern Ireland. And everybody stood except for Paisley. Paisley wouldn't stand. I was at the CLC bookshop in the late 90s, and I bought all of Paisley's books to bring home. I had them, but they, were, they had them on sale, the old British gentleman standing at the counter. He said, Paisley, ah, Paisley, Paisley. He said, you want to read Paisley? I said, I've read everything he's got. I said, I'm buying these and taking them home to young preachers. We live in the States. He said, uh, he said let me tell you a little, uh, little story of Paisley. He said that uh, the queen and the pope and Paisley were aboard an aircraft and said they took, out, took off and said as they passed over Buckingham, said the queen looked out and saw all the people standing outside the gate, said she took her brooch off of her lapel, threw it out the window and said this will please my people. Said they got a little farther into their flight and they were up over the Vatican and said the Pope looked out and saw all the people gathered outside the Vatican, said he sprinkled some holy water and he said this will please my people. Said they went a little farther and got over northern Ireland. And uh, Paisley looked down and saw all the people gathered outside uh, Martyr's Memorial Church and said he grabbed the Pope, threw him out the window and said, this will please my people. <clears throat> you just had to have known him. You just had to have known him. But his doctrinal book that he wrote many years ago he was dealing with the resurrection. I read his chapter in preparation. He recorded. Of course, others have recorded. I've come across it since then. But the story of two men by the name of Lord Littleton and Gilbert West. They set out. They were learned men of their day. They were atheists. One of them, at best, was an agnostic. But there were two uh, doctrines they felt like in the Christian Bible that could be disproved from the Bible itself. One of them was the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. The other one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, from the grave. So they came together, and uh, some of their friends, of course, were behind them and supported them. They decided they'd take a few months. One would take the Bible and study the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. The other one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And they would uh, bring their facts back to disprove that. They 
came back after so many months. And Wes said to Littleton, said, I must confess before we go very far into this conversation, after studying the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, I believe he was indeed converted and was saved by the grace of God and that he was born again. And he said, Littleton, I must confess that I too now have been converted after studying the Christian Bible. And then, uh, and then Wes said to him, uh, said the same about the resurrection of Christ. He too had found, he too had found Christ in studying the word of God. Notice with me lastly and briefly the jubilation or the praise over Christ's healing work. Verse number 12, and with this we will be done. Verse number 12, and immediately he arose and took up the bed and went forth before them all insomuch that they were all amazed. You ever seen a conversion like that or a touch of God like that? Insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Most of us are familiar with Curtis Gibson and his church planting in France, South Louisiana. He's now back living in South Mississippi. His uh, testimony is he wants to plant one more church before he dies, battling prostate cancer up in his 70s. He's the greatest soul winner I believe I've ever met in my life. I've been with him in restaurants, gas stations. He witnesses to everybody. His prayer always was that God would move him into a trailer park when he'd come back to the States, moved into South Louisiana, and he'd pray that God would have a vacancy in the trailer in the trailer park next to the biggest, meanest, most foul-mouthed man that lived there. And he'd go to work on him. I'm telling you, he's like a bloodhound on a man's trail. And he would witness and talk to him about the gospel. And he said, the reason why is because you get that man saved. And he said, it's almost like raising Lazarus from the dead. Everybody else will stand amazed and want to know what, he's, what you got to say. Oh, beloved, listen. The Bible says, at the command of Christ, this man got up. He said, I say unto thee, arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And the man said, Lord, I think I will. And he got up, rolled up his bed, and he left. The Bible says in Matthew's account that the Lord said to him, Son, be of good cheer. And then he told him to do it. Aren't you glad the Lord has a cheerful word? For the downtrodden today. Aren't you thankful? This old boy got more than he expected. And he got everything he needed. Everything he needed. Forgiveness. Again you can't go to heaven without it can you? Without knowing the Savior. The, the Son of God. Lord Jones said this. And I promise you I'm almost done. He said the ultimate test of our spirituality. Is the measure of our amazement. At the grace of God. Let me quote him again. The ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. You understand what I'm saying? How many years have you been saved? How many years? And she still got that Mallory, it hadn't been that long, has it? Have you still got that? Don't ever lose it. Now, I'm going to tell you what. The devil in this world, your own flesh, will talk you out of your bill of rights to your joy if you are not careful. 
If you'll rejoice, that's contagious. If you'll worship, that's a bit contagious. I think about just now, and I'll close with this. I think about just now the old slave preacher that was converted years ago, John Jasper. I was thinking of him about two weeks ago, as a matter of fact, in my study. Pulled his biography out. I plan to go back through it. A man by the name of Hatcher wrote it. John Jasper was converted while, uh, while a slave on the plantation just outside Richmond, Virginia, um, owned by Sam Hargrove. From what we know about what's recorded about his life, uh, Jasper was a recluse, didn't bother anybody, never got in the middle of anything, did his job, went back to his abode, come back do it again the next day, every day of his life. Hargrove heard a commotion under one of the tobacco sheds, sent another slave to fetch whoever it was causing the noise. Came back with John Jasper. He's a bit surprised to take it back because it was Jasper. He said, John Jasper, what's all the commotion about? And he said, this is how it's recorded in his book. He said, Master Sam said, uh, didn't mean to let no shout go, but uh, said, I've been searching for the Lord for a mighty long time. And said, on my 27th birthday, I done found him. And said, I didn't mean to let no shout go, but said, my holding back strap done broke. Said, he shouted, telling it. Hargrove, as is told in the biography, said, John Jasper, don't you apologize for that. He said, tell it everywhere you go, John Jasper. He says, as a matter of fact, fly away with the angels, telling it. And you know he did that? As a matter of fact, people marveled. He challenged those that did not believe in creationism in his day. Couldn't read and write. Just God gave him an uncanny wisdom. When the weather would be permitting, he'd preach out in the open air in those tobacco fields. Dignitaries would come hear him. Elected officials would come hear him. He'd led a senator, some elected official, to the Lord. And as they were getting up, Jasper was going to go on and mingle among the people. And he said, wait a minute, John Jasper. And this is a matter of record, by the way. He said, you can't read your name in boxcar letters. He said, how do you preach with such power? This was Jasper's uh, response to him. He said, I just asked the Lord to lights up the page. When the Lord lights up the page, I lights into preaching about Jesus. Two or three tried to get his mother's funeral sermon down. Well, John Jasper had an imagination. He'd have the Bible read to him, and some taught him how to read portions of the Word of God. He could read somewhat before he died. And, and he was preaching his mother's funeral and got so happy in the Lord and quoting Scripture, he got to walking up down the streets of gold, shaking Abraham's hand and Isaac and introducing himself to Jacob and Isaiah, thanking them for their writings and their work for God. When it come time to die, Jasper didn't have anything. He didn't have enough money for uh, expense for anything. And there were those that pooled their monies. There's a monument. I've seen pictures up. There's a monument in Richmond, Virginia. Wound up, once he was freed from slavery, pastoring the second largest church in Richmond, Virginia. People so loved him. And it was like it ought to be today. There were white people converted under him, black people converted under him, rich people converted under him, uh, poor people converted under his ministry. But as the story goes of John Jasper, before he died, he was lying on his bed with a sheet. Those close to him, there weren't many ever got close to him. Those closest to him were trying to attend to him as he was on his deathbed about to die. He'd lie motionless for a few days just before he died as his biography goes. He kind of come to and looked, up, looked around and then took his sheet and flopped it over to the side. He got up best he could and he clicked his heels together and gave a salute. 
looked straight up, and he said, Dear Lord, this shall be John Jasper. Got back in the bed, pulled the sheet up, and those that recorded it said best they could tell, they never saw him move the sheet again. And I'm going to tell you, they rejoiced that they had known the old preacher, John Jasper. Do you know if you know the Lord, you live for the Lord, you help get people to the Lord, there's a whole lot of rejoicing can take place. Let's stand together. Brother Greg and Miss Angie will come.